Hello everyone and welcome to the Talk Music Podcast, where we chat everything and anything related to the world of music and occasionally focus on topics a little bit unrelated. My name is Scott Kelly. I am a drummer turned comedy singer-songwriter and apparently now a podcaster. You're going to hear me chat to many different people, but more often than not, it will be fellow musicians having conversations about their careers and lives within, arguably, the greatest art form in the world. And you get this for free each and every week on scottcowie.com, on Stitcher Radio, and now on iTunes. So please rate, review, subscribe, tell a friend, let them know what's going on over here. But for now, enjoy the show. Guest this week in the podcast, the legendary Ted McKenna, the man that's drummed for the sensational Alex Harvey band, he's drummed for Rory Gallagher, he's drummed with everybody under the sun. Uh, I've known Ted forever and I can't wait to chat to him. I've got Ron North, our producer, uh, with me right now. How are we, Ron? I'm good, Scott, how are you? Uh, You know me, Ron, can't complain, never do, especially when, and I'll get my plugs and advertisements in just now, I am playing on the 18th of October at the Griffin Bar, Sucky Hall Street. You'll be there, won't you? Yeah, I'll be there. It's part of an Oxjam extravaganza, and I don't have the information to hand as to who else is playing. Elvira Stitt's playing, I know that for sure. But I'm, in fact, do you know what? I'm just going to name and shame, actually. Laura, who's promoting this gig, here's what was going to happen on this podcast. I was going to phone her up, right? And Ron's laughing, right? Because he knows that I shouldn't be saying this, but I'm going to say it anyway, because, you know, that's what we do. Um, We were going to call her, and we were going to get her to talk about the gig, you know? I, because I'm a nice person and I like to, you know, promote the person's gig that's 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 putting me on the stage. Um so and she hasn't answered her phone because she's probably drunk and on drugs. I'm kidding, Laura, I'm only joking. She's gonna definitely batter me come the eighteenth of October at the Griffin Bar. I'll be on at seven o'clock. It's an early one. There's a lot of bands on, it's a uh, Ox Jam extravaganza of some description. So get yourself along. How much it is, I don't know. Laura's got that information. But like I said, she's not answering her phone because she's drunk. Ron, anything exciting happening in the world of Ron this week? I don't know. I sponsored the walk last night with my sister. Um, down the Falls of Clyde, which is next to Newmark, which is a wee town in Scotland. There's not a lot of people know about it. There's probably quite a few that do. Um, but yeah, we were walking up there back at 7, 8 o'clock in the dark with torches. Toasting marshmallows on fires and it was quite good actually. Slightly creepy, but slightly creepy, but quite good, yeah. But but good nonetheless. Um, what else has been happening on? Did you listen to the U two album that went out for free? No. A lot of people have been moaning about the fact. That, I mean, I don't. I've I've got it obviously, right? Because I've got an iTunes account, and if anybody that doesn't know this, I would imagine you all do. But U two gave their album out for free, um, which I think is pretty cool. Like I said, I've not listened to it, but I think it's pretty... But people have been moaning about it, which I think is a bit... There is is speculation that Apple paid them quite a lot of money to do that on the release of the iPhone 6. Regardless, I think it's pretty cool. You wake up one morning, you've got a free album by one of the biggest bands in the world. Because I don't understand people have been reacting so... They've been so annoyed with it, you know. I think it's a dis- it's a total disgrace. It's like you're getting a free album. What's the big deal? It's a, it's probably the same people actually that were moaning about Napster all those years ago when they were you know taking stuff for free and moaning about the fact that they were you know having to pay for it and now they're getting an album for free and they're moaning about that. But nonetheless, peace and love, and I tell you the reason why because Ted McKenna's going to be on the podcast. You've been a fan of Ted for years, right? Oh yeah, totally. He's a brilliant drummer. Uh, he's 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 quite quite special actually, possibly the greatest drummer to ever come out of Scotland apart from Ron 
Many years ago, I was still crap. <laughs> Many years ago, I was still awful. Let's get right down to the interview with the legend that is Ted. I am back on the Talk Music Podcast. This is the podcast I've been saving for a rainy day because this is the person that lives across the road from me and has lived across the road from me as we just walked out uh, six years or something like that. Six years, yep. Six right. years. Unbelievable. Uh, Ted McKenna, how are you? I'm all right, Scott. How How's you? your health? I'm good. Don't I look wonderful? You do. You look great <laughs> because... Do you want to tell us what happened recently? Uh, well, I just had a hernia operation. Uh, I had it on the 17th and... Uh, uh, it's my second. The first one I had uh, was some years ago, and the recovery, the immediate recovery, was quite heavy duty. You know, I couldn't hardly move. This one has been much, much better. So I'm really happy about it, and uh, I'm glad it's out of the way before we go back on the road again on the 17th of October, the Band of Friends. So tell us about this band then. Band of Friends, well... Um, as you know, Scott, we were together in uh, North Glasgow College for some time, and my after I reinvented myself uh, after twenty one years in London as a as a lecturer, and you got a, you got a real job. <laughs> I got a proper job. I never stopped playing, and I was touring every year. I was doing stuff, but um, it was it was a very very convenient scenario to move into that. But uh, so that was actually couldn't I couldn't believe in the end it was fifteen years. Um, but just towards the end, um, I got a call um, from Jerry McAvoy, who was uh, who I worked with with Rory Gallagher for for years, and uh, he'd been doing a band of friends thing with Lou Martin, Brendan, and the guys from Nine Blue Zero, and Gwen Ashton on guitar, and Lou Martin unfortunately took ill, so he thought, why don't I see if Ted wants to do it. So this is how it started, really, and we did a few. We did we did um, we did uh, Greece when the Olympic Games was on. Right. That gives you an idea how far back it was. Anyway, um, it went on. We did a few gigs here and there around the world, whatever, and then it kind of petered out. But when he called me just as I was finishing up at the college, he said um, he'd met this guitar player who was unbelievable, a Dutch guy, and he was they were playing at some kind of uh, Rory tribute night, and you know, we should maybe have a chat about this because this guy is really good. And he said um, it made him think about all the material that we did and all the great stuff and it wouldn't be great to take it on the road and do it justice. And so um, he was playing at the Green... Uh, with Nine Below Zero, he was playing at the Green um, the Green Hotel in Kinross, uh, David Mundell's place. And uh, I went up to see them and I got up for a few tunes and the old, the old magic was there, as they say, you know, Jerry and I, the rhythm section. And um, he said, I'll give you a call later. So eventually he called me and I went out to Amsterdam. And Jerry lives in France and Marcel lives in uh, Amsterdam. And his father has a club called Malo Mello. And we went over there and we rehearsed. Now, as you know, I've been in the business quite a long time. I've been playing for 48 years. So my instincts are pretty good uh, when it comes to musicianship. I can usually tell some cases in the first two notes that somebody plays whether or not I think I could, you know, it's a chemistry thing and it's also a, you know, you talk when you play an instrument. You basically say what, what, what you're about when you play your instrument. Anyway, um, from the first note, we played a song and it just felt great. Mm -hmm. And it was, you know, Jerry and I understood, but working with this guy, it was just a perfect uh, thing. And uh, it's never, it's, it's just gone, it's been getting better and better. 
48 years playing. You've taught me an awful lot. I've known you forever, right? Mm. Since you were 12? Since I was 12, I started going for you, uh, to you for drum lessons. One of the many things that you taught me is how to spin a drumstick. Do you remember who taught you how to spin a drumstick? Oh, don't tell me that's the only thing I taught you. Oh, no, it was a lot, but that was a nice wee lead-in because I do know the answer to this question. Uh, yeah, of course you do. Um, well, the only stick spin that I do is one that John Bonham taught me. And for a lot of people who don't um, know it, and, 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 and they're always surprised when I tell this story, people in Court Bridge, Robert Plant and the Band of Joy played in the Marion Hall in Whiflet. Uh, in 1967 right and I was 17 and my band supported the Robert Plant and the Band of Joy um, we used to go and put our gear in and then we'd go home and have a sandwich and a cup of tea a sandwich and a cup of tea at our mummies and daddies and then we'd go down to the gig and when we were going down it was all these guys standing outside the Night Star fish and chip shop just next to the the big tree in the in the Wifflet and we thought, God, that must be the band. They had short, you know, real long hair, Afghan jackets, crushed velvet pants, Cuban old boots. I thought, God, they're they're obviously the rock band, you know. We're still short haired, we guys wearing our school school trousers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, um, when we got in there, um, they were amazing. Um, Bonham uh, hardly had a pair of sticks, so I gave him a pair of sticks. Mm-hmm. You know, they were pretty new. Um, he was fascinated by my drum kit because I had a snare drum which was 30 years it was it was made in the 30s so mm. this is 1967 so it was over 30 years old then it was a premier dominion and at that time most drummers used piccolo snare drums uh, although strangely enough piccolo snare drums were very common and nobody used to think about it then you had a five and a half this was a six and a half drum and he was looking at it going wow and it looked like a Ludwig, for those out there who understand, who know the types of drums, with the with the with the, the the band around the middle kind of uh, thing. Anyway, he borrowed my. He had his own Ludwig drum, but he, and, and you know your snare drums kind of particular to you as if you're a, if you're a drummer. So he borrowed half my kit so that he could have a double kit, right. so he could have a double bass drum kit. He had a Ludwig and I had a Premier, and he borrowed Tom Toms and everything because the two of us were going on about calm and a piece who played with Vanilla Fudge and yep. how, how imp- what a great impression that he made on us. So um, they went on and were unbelievable. I mean, there's a whole story to it. I don't know if we get time to tell the whole story. Go for it. Time. Yeah, we'll just tell it anyway. I but. mean, this is going to be a, this is going to be a nine-parter, as a we nine discussed earlier. Okay. So it's all yeah, good. So, the, <laughs> um, so um, after all the, the stuff uh, and the chat, then they, the way it worked in the Marion Hall was... Um, we went on first, they came on in the middle, and then we were on at the end, because we were playing mainly, this old heart of mine being broke a thousand times. We were doing dance music, mm-hmm. which was popular Tamla Motown and stacks, like Knock On Wood and Hold On I'm Coming and all that sort of stuff. So um, we'd done our set, and then they came on, and we just got off the stage and went down and stood at the front of the stage to see what they were going to be like. And they opened up with Morning Dew, a song by Tim Rose. Mm-hmm. And it was just amazing. And they sounded amazing. And Bonham, at that point, changed my whole attitude to drumming. Because it was the way he approached hitting the drums. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was thought of myself as being pretty good in those days. And people said I was a really good drummer. But um, 
his attitude, the aggressive way he played and the way he hit the drums really inspired me and made me realise that there was another approach to it and it was instrumental in the, in the way I developed my own style. But the funny thing that happened during the set was I remember we were standing at the front and of course I wasn't really interested in what was going on but I hadn't noticed that the floor was deserted behind me because nobody was dancing. And there was a guy I went to um, school with called um, Tony McCluskey and he came up to me and he said, Ted, get this shite off. The girls are no dancing. True enough. Because they were doing quite obscure material. They did Vanilla Fudge's version of You Keep Me Hanging On, where Bonham hits the cymbals up and down. Right. Do, do, yep. do, do, do. I mean, it was just fantastic. Anyway, nobody in the hall was interested. The girls were kind of to the back watching, you know. And um, so I'm saying, what do you mean it's, it's rubbish? These guys are amazing. Anyway, he walked off. Then he did the Lemon Song. And the Lemon Song, I found out later in a documentary about Zeppelin, they'd gotten barred from their college when they were younger for doing this. And Robert Plant stood on a chair. And the Lemon Song, if again, I'm sure most of you Led Zeppelin fans will know, squeeze my lemon till the juice runs down my leg. That's the lyric. So he's standing on the chair, simulating a certain act, um, which... Um, Coitus, I think is the term for it. <laughs> and at the moment he's doing this, Father Mannion, who was the chaplain, came in at the back of the hall, looked around, saw all the girls watching the band with their hands over their faces and peeking out between the fingers. And he just said, right, get them off, off. And he just told the band to go off stage. No way. So the band had to go off stage. Robert Plant, John Bonham, <laughs> and... The other guys weren't, it wasn't Zeppelin at that point, it right. was the original one. And um, so we, <laughs> and then we were back on it going, this all hard, man. And Tony and all the guys are up dancing with the girls and hopefully expecting a bit of action later on. And to this day, and especially the older I get, I think, what a ridiculous contradiction that is. You know, he's simulating the sex act. And because we're back on, the guys are going to actually be doing it for real after the show. Do you know what I mean? I couldn't get my head around that. But anyway, that's... Um, only in Wifflet. But the point of the story was... <laughs> only in Wifflet. <laughs> uh, the point of the story... Led, Led Zeppelin couldn't make it in Wifflet. Sorry, Ted, go on. Yeah. But um, the, uh, the, the, the thing afterwards... Um, when we we started talking, I talked to Bonham and we, we you know, just usual drum talk. I mean, I think he was probably about two or three years older than I was. He was about, I was 17, he would have been 19 or 20. <clears throat> and he, I asked him how he spun his sticks because he used to spin his stick above his head while he was doing a triplet thing with one hand. You know, he do with one hand and he'd spin the stick. So he showed me how to spin the stick and he'd learned it from a guy called Trevor Moray, right. who was the drummer with a band called The Peddlers. If mm -hmm. you ever look at The Peddlers, he was an, a great drummer. Ended up running a studio that the Alex Harvey band, sensational Alex Harvey band actually recorded it. But he was the guy that showed Bonham how to spin his sticks and, and John Bonham showed me it. He also showed me the thing that he did which later on I realised Buddy Rich was doing. He Buddy Rich was doing everything before that. Mm -hmm. But not quite the same way Bonham did it. You know, Bonham's was, and, and guys like uh, Cam in a piece 
was uh, the simplicity of power drumming, you know. And just he showed me how he did a, the triplet on the ba- snare drum, tom tom bass drum, snare mm-hmm. drum, tom tom bass. So he showed me how he, how he did that, and I learned that from him, and went in and adapted it uh, for more use. Um, but it was great. In the end of the evening, they tried to invite themselves back to our parents' house so that they wouldn't have to drive all the way back down to uh, Birmingham. Birmingham. Yep. Um, and I, we all, I kind of thought that if these guys arrived at our front door, my mother would probably have a heart attack. <laughs> but um, the great, it, it, that was a that was a phenomenal thing, and that was that was um, uh, 1967 in Coatbridge. Fascinating. But uh, and the funny thing is, I met Carmen a piece. Uh, he was um, he was a drummer. He was a friend of my first wife's friend, who was American. My first wife, Tracy, and. I met him when he was visiting her friend, Lizzie, uh, in Portobello Road. And the two of us were raving about him, uh, about John Bonham. Right. <laughs> and if, you know, I'm talking to John Bonham and, raving, and we're raving about him. And then uh, it was just, it was quite interesting. But uh, interesting story, I'd say. I'd say. Absolutely. First impression of Bonham, obviously, it's, it's changed your, your approach to drumming, like you said. Other first impressions, I'm really interested to know the first time he hears Al Clemson play. Where was that? Can you remember? Yes, it was in Airdrie Town Hall. Um, he was in a band called the Bow Weevils, mm-hmm. who were managed by... Eddie Tobin? Eddie Tobin, who was Teargas's manager um, when I joined them, and also was instrumental in, in put, putting us together, um, Teargas, with Alex Harvey and creating the band. He was the man that actually created the potion <clears throat> um, but the Bow Weevils were like a lot of these bands at that time the Bow Weevils the Chris McClure section the Pathfinders the Meridians uh, there was a pile of bands the Beachcombers there was loads of bands that used to play every town hall and we because I mean this was when I was 16 because I did my first gig my first gigs when I was 16 my first ever gig was in Coatbridge Library to the Debating Society, um, whose head. I'm, of, I'm laughing at that because if anybody said you you play drums, you know the idea of you playing a library is obviously very funny. Sorry, uh, Dave, yeah, you well, go. yeah, it's, but it was upstairs in the, in one of the little conference rooms, um, and Owen Mullen, whose father was a provost at that time, had arranged this little gig for us because we had never played a gig together. So it was it was like it was two guitars, no bass, two guitars and drums. Um, and there's a story that goes with that. But Helen Liddell, uh, who was on the debating society at our school, right. she was in the same year, I think, or just below John Reed, who was also in a band with the first guitar player that I worked with. Um, proper guitar player, a guy called Arthur McWilliams. He was in the same year as John Reed, mm-hmm. the politician. Uh, so it was all kind of tied up together, strangely enough. But um, I've gone off the point. When I did that first gig, then the, the, fir- the fir- one of the first gigs we did was every Town Hall eventually when I we had a band. And I was still at school at the time. Bo Weevils, like all these bands, as I said, were were very much a kind of, um, you know, they, were, they, were, they wore suits, tight trousers and, and, and tried to create a stir. Did Tamla Motown... All of that stuff was popular in all the dance halls. People came to dance, you know, that was what it was. Have a drink and have a dance. And get a lumber, as they used to say. Um, 
So we were always fascinated by the other bands and we were always eager to learn. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we'd always be standing backstage watching them and I'd be watching the drummer and, you know, and we'd talk to them and ask them about, you know, where they get the gear and, and blah, 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 blah. And I always remember um, Zal being on stage with them and, you know, the, the, the craziest thing I remember about him the first time I laid eyes on him was he was standing behind the curtain holding a cord on his, his Fender Strat, I think he had at the time, with a roadie trying to tune it. Mm-hmm. Now, at that point, I thought, what's wrong? Can this guy not tune his own guitar? Because it just looks strange. But the more you understand about guitars, what countless guitar players I've worked with, sometimes when you work with a guitar, you get a problem with, uh, depending on how it needs to be set up. Right. In certain places, a chord will be out of tune, whereas it's in tune somewhere else. So I think what he was trying to get this particular part of the fretboard in tune, so he couldn't play the chord and hold it consistently unless somebody else tuned it and just did a little tweak for him. So that, I found out later that that's what it was. Um, you know, with Bo Weevils, it was it was more their act. I didn't think much about the playing because it was Tamla Motown stuff. Mm-hmm. Was um, I was playing even then, the early doors. Was he a bit of a stick out in that group? Um, yeah, I suppose he was because he and the singer are the ones that I suppose I remember most. A guy called George Gilmer, who went on to be an actor. Uh, but they had a, such a stage act. And the, and the thing about Eddie Tobin, who was managing them then, he would get the roadies to get the you said they actually used to pay the girls to run to the front of the stage mm. to create an, an event right. and push them forward and all that so the, they would always be moving back and forward from the, the back of the stage to the front of the stage but the first time I saw them at Airdrie Town Hall the band came on full of action jumping about girls are all screaming playing the first couple of songs and then George Kilmer comes and jumps over Sal's amps his right. cabinets mm-hmm. to the front of the stage and, and they did a, sing, a song called Asking for Trouble, which he used to he used to practice the dance the dance step in the dressing room. And we thought, God, these guys are so professional. He was standing looking in the mirror doing this dance dance movement for the song. He jumps over the, the amps and splits his pants right all the way up his arse and has to go right back off again. Oh, God. So that was, uh, that, was the, that was the most memorable thing about them. Uh, of course, I saw Zal later when he was in Teargas and my band again had moved forward in various incarnations and we supported Teargas in uh, <clears throat> various gigs here mm-hmm. there and uh, always thought they were good and it was obviously Zal had more of a handle on what the band was about because it was kind of heavy, you know, and they did their first album, uh, Piggy Go-Getter, and uh, it had quite a lot of um, interesting guitar stuff in it so you could tell that they were a bit different mm-hmm. and doing their own material and um, and they had created quite a quite a reasonable following that um um but that was how i first that's the way i first saw him that's quite a while before i actually joined them because i'd gone through a few other trips um i joined the dream police mm-hmm. left my high school band joined the, i mean a high school band which had turned professional mm-hmm. and i joined um, the uh, the dream police with Hamish stewart yeah uh, which lasted just for a short time, and uh, and then uh, they played some gigs. Uh, well, funnily enough, that band lasted for about six months, and and then I'd heard that Hamish 
the the roadies came in and said, Hamish should just quit the band. He's getting a band together with Willie, who was the drummer of Teargas, and um, <clears throat> Fraser Watson, and Matt, who was the keyboard player. And they were calling themselves Berserk Crocodile. Anyway, I thought, oh, that means Teargas need a drummer then. So I called up Eddie Tobin immediately and said, I hear you guys are looking for a drummer. And he said, yeah, okay. So I basically got in the car that night, drove back to Scotland, and the next day I went in and played with them. And that was it. I joined Teargas. So Teargas are building a reputation. Mm. Had you heard of Alex Harvey prior to this? Never heard of him. Right. So the, you guys famously now mm. see him play or he... You've seen him play, but did he see... The yeah, tear gas played prior to that. What was the deal? No, I don't think he had. What happened was Eddie Tobin was in a in, in a in a um, an agency called Music in Cabaret, which mm-hmm. is based in Glasgow. And they brought they were the ones that brought Robert Plant and the Band of Joy. So all the gigs we used to do would be through that. There was about five bookers in that. There was Ronnie Simpson. Just, just to stop you, that's it. Okay. so am I right in saying that Tobin's to blame for bringing Plant and Bonham to Coatbridge? Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, he's he's to blame because he was part of that agency that booked all the bands. And we used to play with quite a lot of different uh, English bands. Um, Philip Goodhan Tate and the Stormsville Shakers. We played with them and we played with Scottish bands who'd come up from London, like the Senate. Mm with uh, Robbie McIntosh, who became the drummer of uh, the Average White Band. Wow. You know, so there was all these bands going around. There was bands that were going down to, to, to London. And um, what happened with... Um, with uh, there were, as I said, there was a number of bookers who worked in, the, in Ronnie Simpson's music and cabaret. Eddie managed um, Tear Gas... Alex Scott managed the Pathfinders and then White Trash, mm-hmm. who were the first band to be signed to the Beatles label, Apple. Mm-hmm. Um, um, what was his name? Cummings, Andy Cummings, who was the ex-bass player of the Chris McClure section, that's Christian. He um, booked out Chris McClure section. And then, um, then there was a chap called Derek Nickel. Now, this is the key to the whole thing, the chemistry or, or the... The way it all came together, Derek Nickel managed a band called Nazareth, mm-hmm. and he managed to get in tow with this guy called Bill Fahili, who was from Coatbridge, um, lived in Green End. He was a very successful entrepreneur, and he <clears throat> ran a lot of bingo halls, and he was very wealthy. And incidentally, Alex Harvey used to work. It was a friend of Alex Harvey from years ago. And Alex used to stick posters up for him. Because Bill Feehealy brought up people like Big Bill Brunzi. Mm-hmm. Uh, half of them, you know, Muddy Waters, all the, you know, all the guys, the old blues players, he brought them over here. Jesus. And had them play and he pr- promoted them. And the stories I heard a few years ago were from guys who live in Green End said that he used to bring them back there to his moors to have their stew. So guys like Big Bill Brunzi, these are celebrated icons of the whole reason we play rock and roll mm-hmm. and blues. We're in Coatbridge. Wow. And a lot of, not a lot of people know that. <laughs> um, but Bill, this is, I'm trying to get back to, Bill Feehealy took on Nazareth. Mm-hmm. And Nazareth became, you know, they, well, they had a hit record in America and they, you know, they used to rehearse in Airdrie in a place called the Countdown Discotheque. And we rehearsed there as well. We used to play there. 
They used, they had a residency in Dunfermline. Uh, they played the the kinema, and they were the house band. Yeah, but they were on. They'd got a, a lead doing their own material. Bloody blah, blah blah. They were going off. So they had an office in London. Now Eddie Tobin went down to work in mountain management, their offices, and that's where he probably met Alex because Alex was also managed by Mountain by Bill Fahili because it was his old pal. Bearing in mind that when we met Alex, he was 38 uh, and we were all 22. So he was about 15 years older than I was. And Bill Fahili was about the same age as Alex, or maybe slightly older. So that was when Eddie found out. Well, basically what happened was he put us on the bill at the marquee in London supporting Alex Harvey. So the, the the film that you'll see on YouTube of the Alex Harvey band, um, it's a little documentary in which he's interviewed by John Peel. Um, that's the the first film thing that we ever did, and it was done by Richard. Um, I've got his name. St- Stanley Baker's son made the film. The, the right. actor Stanley Baker. Um, Chris Baker. I'm not. I can't remember off the top of my head, but he was the guy who made the film. When we saw Alex, and we supported Alex, um, we saw a band that we thought were a bit lukewarm, you know. The three-piece? It was a three-piece. Right. I, I can't remember what they're called. I think it was just advertised as Alex Harvey. But I think somebody put a a, a cutting uh, from from uh, the Melody Maker or something, and it says Alex Harvey supported by tear gas. It's, it's out there, you know. Right. Um, but I remember we came up, I mean, we were put people through the back of the hall with right. volume. You know, we were just heavy. And by that time, Hugh McKenna had joined the band. Mm-hmm. I'd managed to get Hugh involved because I thought he was the icing on the cake that the mm-hmm. band needed because we had a great rhythm section and Zal was a great guitar player. Chris and I locked together. But we needed a bit, as far as I was concerned. And plus Hugh sang, you know. Mm-hmm. So um, we played there. We came off and we watched Alex and I just saw that this guy was so charismatic and so dangerous looking. There was mm. just something incredible about him. But his band was a bit, a bit lukewarm. And looking back, I remember he was walking about the stage when we were actually doing our sound check. And, I, and to this day, I have the feeling that he was kind of checking us out. Mm-hmm. You know, because he had, he'd had been in the, his own soul band. He'd played in Germany. He'd worked in Hair in the theatre right, the great stories I can tell you about that as well but he he was um, he was um, he was in there so um, he was a very experienced guy at the time um, but the, I can, I, there's even another funny story about the, the, the night we played supporting Alex a guy that I went to school with here in, 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 in Coat Bridge a guy called um, Felix Gray he came in to see me in the dressing room and I hadn't seen him for a year since I left school and he came in and he was sitting the, the dressing room in the marquee went down towards the, a, a door um, and it was kind of running at right angles to the stage so I'm sitting up the back with this guy in front of me with his back to the door and just as Alex Harvey walked in at the bottom of the door <laughs> Felix Gray said to me he says who is this guy Alex Harvey anyway and I was quite embarrassed because I, I just thought you know it must have been you know, a bit embarrassing for Alex. Um, but anyway, um, some time later, Eddie Tobin ho- held a band meeting. And at that point, Teargas were basically 
holding our head above water, but we're not weren't getting anywhere. We weren't getting a, another record deal. We'd done the band had done two albums. I'd done the second one, and um, Eddie just said, "Look, we're still paying off McCormick's for equipment." All the money we're making, and we were making good money in Scotland for that time, 75 to £100 a gig, which was a lot in those days, mm-hmm. considering a lot of bands were making 15 20 25 £35. But we were using that money to go down and, and sleep six to our room in the Grantley and Shepherd's Bush while we were waiting to get gigs um, from a guy called Tony Calder, who worked with um, the Stones management, mm-hmm. Andrew Luke Oldham and, and Tony Calder. But we weren't, there was nothing happening. So he said, either we, the band's either going to split up, but there's this idea. You remember that guy, Alex Harvey, we met? Well, he's looking for a band. And obviously he's seen us, and he thought, blah, blah, blah. And I remember I was with Hugh, and we left this meeting, and we went to the station to get a train back here to, to Coatbridge, and, and I thought, well, at least they'll keep the band together. Because the offer was that he would... Mountain management would pay our gear off, buy us a new PA system, and put us on a salary of fifteen pounds a week. At that point, we were paying ourselves eight pounds a week. Mm-hmm. So it was again an offer, an offer that we couldn't refuse. We thought, but well, we don't know. This is an old guy. I mean, he's thirty-eight. What's it going to be like working with him? You know. So um, we took the chance and um, went for it. And. Uh, we met Alex. We met Bill Fahili first. He wanted to see us to just. So we went to the Lido Cafe in uh, in uh, Renfield Street, I think. Mm-hmm. It used to be the old Lido. And uh, we met him there. We had cheeseburgers and a blather, and uh, that was all good. And then we met Alex a few days later. I've actually got the diary with all of this, uh, uh, wow. with the, the actual dates and things. Um, as well as the one with uh, uh, Robert Plant, the band of joy. <laughs> anyway, <clears throat> um, and then we met Alex in the Burns House, where we used to play. And I think you got eight quid for playing the Burns House. Uh, 15, 20 years later, I came back and the bands were still getting eight quid. Um, but uh, no wonder it's closed down. <laughs> anyway, um, great gig though, fantastic gig. So we we met Alex, he came in with these desert boots and his jeans and a corduroy jacket and his guitar over his his back in a kind of wooden guitar case and uh, we went up to a place called Thor which is um, in uh, West Regent Street uh, which was owned by Harry Margolis uh, it was a recording studio and there was a re- we went up into a rehearsal room there and the f- you know we were quite anxious because we thought what's it going to be like working with this guy because you know we, we've got our own ideas about what we should sound like and mm-hmm. uh, so when we got into the room, he, he pulled the guitar out and he played um, the riff to Midnight Moses. Immediately that got our attention. We thought, hey, that's a real cool riff. That. So we played it. Zal learned it quickly and we played it and then we thought, ah, yeah, we can play this. We can kill this. <laughs> so, uh, and that was it. That was it. First tune we did. Alex Harvey. Nice guy, intimidating guy, bit of both. What was he like? Exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah, he could be very intimidating. Um, Especially because you, as you pointed out, you were a good bit younger than him, right? Well, yeah. He was a bit like, uh, or you could definitely say he was a bit like a father figure to us in the sense that he'd been away in Germany. Um, he said, As he said, the Beatles had gone by the time he got there because everybody flocked 
to um, you know the bands like the Animals and you know Eric Burton. All the, all the bands from all over Britain went to Germany because the Beatles had been playing there, and everybody just felt it's a bit like you know people go to King Tut's because Oasis was you know, mm-hmm. or the Mean Fiddler because some band was in London was was picked up. I presume that was the, the reason. And plus, it was a twenty four hour city, mm-hmm. and the bands played all night. So um, the whole thing. Uh, you know, the whole thing was was a package, um, and right away we felt well. The guy knows what he's doing. You know, mm-hmm. he's he's experienced. But you know, as you say, Alex was. I mean, I used to meet Alex for for a, for a drink, or I'd go around his house, and he was just like a nice, quiet, normal guy. Mm-hmm. Um, we'd go out to the pub sometimes, and he'd have his his brown corduroy jacket with the leather patches. He just looked like a geography teacher. <laughs> he did. And um, he was very, you know, I, you know, it's it's amazing when you when I think back the amount of things I learned from Alex because he was so much older and more experienced. And uh, but the great thing about uh, interaction between somebody that age and somebody our age is just is this the, that chemistry of of youth and energy, learning and wanting to you know learn things and uh, it was a great combination. It was a great marriage, but um, you know. He's like a lot of guys like Rory Gallagher. I mean, Rory Gallagher was in the sense that Rory was the... You'd sit with him anywhere and he was the nicest, most gentle man that you could imagine. He was, you know... And yet he went on stage and became a completely different character. Mm-hmm. And uh, Alex could be the... The difference with Alex was that Alex had a stage persona, but his stage persona would carry off the right. stage. Mm-hmm. So... He could very. He could be. He was. He was always up to having fun and tricks. He was always the last one to go to bed when we were on tour, as I remember. But he was always the guy that was always noising things up and instigating uh, adventures and games and, and all sorts of things. But he was always. He's, he was always that. But he could be quite. He could be. He could do. He, you know. He could wind people up. I mean, he knew how to. One of the things he was very good. He knew how to 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 provoke the band. Mm-hmm. or to wind us up and get reaction because he knew that was the essence of the performance. Uh, one of the things I learned from Alex was that, um, which I've carried with me all my life, uh, and I do my best to always do it, is that when you go on the stage, it doesn't matter how you feel as long as you feel at 100%. So if you're depressed, be depressed and let it come out of your, through your instrument. If you're angry, the same thing. And if you're happy, you know. But the essence of, of performance is to feel something. And that's one of the, the major things about a band live. If the band doesn't feel it, the audience won't feel it. And and Alex taught me that because there was always the funny stories. Um, I mean, when, when I was in my first band, we used to play Kidlook Town Hall every Saturday night. And we'd play, uh, we'd play um, Kilsyth Welfare every second Friday. But in Kidlook... I used to spend for ages trying to tune my snare drum because when I went into the hall, in one gig it would sound great and in the other gig it would sound terrible and I couldn't understand why because I hadn't appreciated that, it, that a drum kit being an acoustic instrument and vocalists suffer from this as well is that you require reflection to get mm. the sound feeling good. And if the sound's too dry, the drums sound quite dead and you tend to play harder 
and you get tense because you're trying to get the sound out of it. But one of the things that used to happen is maybe the hi-hat wasn't working properly and uh, you'd get, I'd get annoyed because I'm trying to play and concentrate and playing and the hi-hat kept moving around or there was something wrong with it. And, and Alex used to make a joke, the concert is cancelled, you know. Mm. Ted's hi-hat's not working properly, you know, it's like, and suddenly I realised, yeah, okay, all right, so it's not all about me, uh, and it's not all about my hi-hat, it's about all these people that have come here to see the show. Yeah. So there was a lot of very valuable lessons mm -hmm. that uh, that I learned from uh, from working with Alex, you know, definitely. Out of everything that the band achieved, what do you think the pinnacle of that band was? Looking back on it, what was the, was there a particular moment, a particular mm. album, a live thing? Well, there are no, there are a number of things. Um, apart from you know being on uh, the American television shows like Ed Concert and um, <clears throat> Don Kirshner's Rock Show, the first bit of magic really was the Reading Festival because we were we we'd managed to harness what it was that we were as a stage performance, and it was killing people everywhere we went. We'd play some gigs. I remember playing a gig somewhere like York or so I can't even remember. Burslem or we played some pub somewhere. And it was an upstairs pub with a reasonable size room, probably held maybe two 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 hundred people or something like that. Or three hundred. And the first time we were there, maybe there was about seventy or eighty people. I remember arriving there the second time and the queue was round the block. It was packed. So that kind of thing you can't buy the sense of achievement that you get from working from nothing and getting there, mm. you know. It's not handed on a plate. We worked our asses off everywhere. But when we got to Reading, we were quite a well-oiled machine and we'd just done our second album, Next. Mm -hmm. And we'd done a song called Faith Healer. So just, just as we were going on, we were bottom of the bill. I can't even remember who was top of the bill, but we were bottom of the bill pretty much. And it was daylight, but it, the sun was just going down and we opened up with Faith Healer. And I could feel the hair go up in the back of my neck. It was magical. It felt as if this is spooky. This is magical. And the next year we were top of the bill at Reading because that, that was, we were on the ascendance. You know, we were, we, we were just, people were paying attention. All the guys like Chas Sham Murray and, uh, and um, oh, I never remember his name. He was the editor of Melody Maker. But these guys used to travel and sleep in the our, our room's floors, you know, mm. with, their, with their bag, with their notebook and all that. They used to, they, they adored the band and all the guys just loved the band. They used to come and see us everywhere. But it was all happened. It was always beginning then. Um, and I suppose the, another pinnacle would have been um, the Christmas shows which to this day I always think, why didn't our management film it? Mm -hmm. we, did f we did Christmas shows. I think we did three nights at the Apollo and four nights at Hammersmith. Wow. And we had a whole stage set and people who to this day say it was the most amazing gigs they'd ever seen. And we had dancing girls, the band. Um, I mean, we had the old kind of street theatre thing still going, but I mean, I suppose... If that had been captured, I mean, I just saw a bit of Bowie, the spiders from Mars, um, which is another story, because <laughs> um, that was on last night and this and watched a live performance and it was amazing. Um, but 
I'd say our equivalent to that was was the the Christmas shows, and it wasn't recorded. But coincidentally, um, when we were supporting Slade, when we were moving further and further up in our success, if you like, our first big, big, the first he- supportive headliner was was Mott the Hoople. Mm-hmm. So we got to know Mick Ronson then. But when we played with Slade, that was they were huge at the time. And before we went on at Earl's Court Arena, Mick Ronson came up to me. Now, Mick Ronson said, I remember you, Ted, you were the guy who was teaching everybody how to play drums in the cavern because his band supported tear gas at the cavern in Liverpool. And um, he was a really nice guy, Mick. I mean, uh, and anyway, he kind of took me aside just before we were on stage and he said, um, David really likes your playing. And he said, uh, he said, you should give him a call. At that point, I had no idea really what Bowie was about, apart from ground control to Major Tom and, you know, maybe hearing a few few things here and there. So he gave me his number, he gave me Bowie's number and told me to give him a phone. And of course, at that point, I thought, Alec Harvey, David Bowie, Alec Harvey, David Bowie, come on, get serious. So I never ever called him. But we went, wow. <laughs> but we went to see... We went to see, um, Hugh and I went to see probably the, the the last Ziggy gig. We were probably at that gig. And we stood up, we, we got in, obviously we got in backstage passes, we got in for nothing. We never, we never had seats, so we just stood and watched from the aisles. And, uh, and he done, Ziggy play guitar, he did all that bit. And, and it was just, I went, this guy's phenomenal. I suddenly the penny dropped and I realised how good Bowie was then mm. but uh, I hope uh, Woody doesn't give me a hard time about that because uh, maybe because Woody 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 Woodmansey who was Bowie's drummer at the time is is he's, he's told um, well he's, he's in documentaries said how he was a big fan of my drumming you know so um, and I'm, I'm I'm becoming more of a fan of his uh, the more I see the early Bowie stuff I mean yeah. I realise what it was all about Maybe he had a better haircut. But he could bend backwards over his drum still, couldn't he? He used to do all crazy things. Really? I don't know. I think so, anyway. But anyway, that was... Um, talking about high points and, uh, you know, that that, that period. Um, I've said this to, to a lot of people that um, the, the magical thing about the Alex Harvey band for me was that, like anybody who's come from the start of a band, from playing... And we played pubs. We played... What do you call it? The the Fishmonger's Arms and and Wood Green or Bounds Green or something. We we used to play pub gigs and and we played universities. We played we played Eton College. We played uh, Sutton Prison. Strangely enough, the reaction was exactly the same in both places. In mm-hmm. in Sutton, you had all the the, the masters, schoolmasters around, and the students. And in Sutton, it was all lifers. And wardens, but the, the reaction was like the young guys were just exactly the same. The, right. the reaction to the music was exactly the same. But uh, we did we did anything and everything on the way up. And um, when you start doing gigs where the band who's number one in the charts is selling four hundred seats, and we are selling it out without a hit, <laughs> then you know you've done your homework because that's. Essentially, that's why the uh, one year we were the biggest live band in, in Britain because we built our following face to face with the audience, right. and that's works with any band like that, you know. And that's the way you've got to do it. And you don't do, you don't get that by playing in your local town to your pals. 
and their parents. Noted. Yeah. Well and truly noted. <laughs> yeah. When we come back, Ted, I want to talk to you about. Well, you mentioned the Redden Festival. One of the one of your journeys to the Redden Festival. <laughs> And I love this story and I want to hear all about it. But uh, I'm going to quickly advertise some of the previous episodes. Here we go. A lot of cool previous episodes for you guys to check out. Glenn Matlock from the Sex Pistols was on episode one. A week later, we had Huey Morgan from the Fun Loving Criminals. Then we had Sandy Tom. Then Brian Ray from Paul McCartney's band. Then amazing guitarist Orianthe. Then I had Bob Jacobs, who's the head spokesman of NASA, believe it or not. He joined us in the podcast. Metallica's therapist, Dr. Phil Toll, he's been on. The Grames from Wet, Wet, Wet. Check that episode out, it's great. Andy McKee, Steve Craddock from Motion Colour Scene. Steve White, Cliff Goldmacher, Martin Taylor, MBE. Stuart Cotland from The Police. Dweezil Zappa, Martin Harley, Julian Lennon. Carol Kay, Tommy Emanuel, Kaki King, John Gom, Nick West, Thomas Lang, Rhonda Smith, Glenn Sobel, Ailey McKellar, Jennifer Batten, Larry Graham, Newton Faulkner, Jack Bruce, Antoine Dufour, Vivi Rama, Warren Hurt, Jeff Friedel, Janine Leah, Rachel Plass, and of course, this episode that you're listening to right here, right now, the legendary Ted McKenna. All these episodes are available at scottcowie.com, they're available on iTunes, they're available on Stitcher Radio, SoundCloud, the lot. Check it out, subscribe, do what you've got to do. It was towards the end of the Sensational Alex Harvey Band, and Hugh had left. And my dear friend, the late Tommy Ayer, the incredible Tommy Ayer, who played with everybody, just check out Tommy E-Y-R-E uh, from Joe Cocker's Grease Band and uh, worked with George Michael, Gary Moore, uh, oh God, Timmy all day. But anyway, he he, he, uh, he was with the band at the time. But the, it was at the end of the band. The band had lost the chemistry. It was going in a different direction. And I was in a situation where I was I was unhappy in the marriage I was in. So I was quite kind of depressed and anxious at that time in my life. <clears throat> I wanted to, I actually wanted to get out of the band, but not consciously, but, and I wanted to get out of the marriage I was in. Um, I'm still in touch with my, my first wife and I'm still in touch with the guys in the band. But um, what happened was that we'd had an argument my wife or basically it was a kind of one-sided argument where I couldn't get to sleep because she was giving me a hard time I even slept in another room we had a cottage in Hazelmere in Surrey the next day we were meant to be flying out to play on the bill within Lizzie at the the Bilson Festival that was on a Friday and on the Sunday we were headlining which would be our last gig with Alex which was the Reading Festival I was meant to be picked up by a taxi. I lived in Hazelmere in Surrey. The taxi was going to come and pick me up about 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock in the morning, take me to Heathrow. We were off to, to play there. So all I remember is not being able to get to sleep, argue, 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 and eventually waking up with a, cat, with a phone. And the, I picked the phone up and it was Derek Nickel who worked for management. Nazareth's manager and he said the ga- the guys have gone the flight's gone and I said what? he said we've been calling you all morning a taxi arrived for you at this the time you've just slept through it I was just was so out of it tired he says we're sending another taxi for you so this other taxi came and uh, any car buffs will remember the Granada gear 
the Granada gear, uh, and it was the top of the line, brand new Granada gear that turned mm. up to pick me up. Um, so I get in there and I was just like, like a zombie, right? To head for Heathrow, and when we arrived at Heathrow, I immediately opened the car door to get out, and a bus took the door off. Now, if I hadn't been saying, see you later, mate, all the best, if I'd just gotten out, the bus would have probably taken me off as well. So I had to get a later flight. flight. I mean, Derek stayed with me, and Derek uh, had to book another flight, which was first class because there weren't any other seats. And then when we got to Bilson, we had to get to, to Geneva. Or was it Geneva? No, Brussels. And there was meant to be a, 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 a vehicle that took everybody from the airport to the gig. But obviously it had gone. So we had to get a taxi. So I ended up having to pay for the first class flight and the taxi, which was, I don't know how many miles. <laughs> if anybody works out um, from, uh, from Brussels to Bilson. Anyway. Good gig? Um, great gig. Absolutely fantastic. Was that the one that was alive? I've had a, a live Redding one. Was it that one? And oh, you mean you're talking about the Redding gig? No, but this, we were going out to... you done that gig and then the and following then, and, and then, then Sunday. We, we came back. The was that the one Sunday. we did that ended with Blue Suede Shoes? Was that that Redding gig? Um, it could possibly be, be, be that one. Alex was, was you know, he's, he's three incarnations or... You know, he did he did the gangster right. and then he did Hitler and then he did Christ when we did Framed. <laughs> I was Framed and he did Christ on that one um, with John Miller dressed as a Centurion. John Miller, the chap who kidnapped Ronald Biggs, was our tour manager. Anyway, so John uh, and John had <laughs> arranged they had arranged a polystyrene cross that Alex was going to be there's photographs of it you know. but anyway that was the, that was the very last gig that we ever played with Alex and the irony you know the, 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 the way it all came about and the way it ended was uh, quite interesting this is going to be part one of goodness knows how many because we, we're going to get you back on but I'm going to ask you something you don't really you, I don't think you get asked a lot about John Martin mm-hmm. you played with John Martin played I didn't I didn't notice up until like a couple of years ago and mm-hmm. I, I, I consider mm-hmm. myself someone that knows your career really well mm-hmm. so tell us about John Martin um, well, I knew John because he used to come to gigs and we'd go out drinking together. We went to the marquee together and did things and I used to drink with him, you know, uh, way back and, uh, in the Alex Harvey band days. And he, he often came to, um, to Chris's house. We used to have a rehearsal situation in Chris's house and he was always there. Uh, so I knew him over the years and uh, I'd go on to see him play and, and my dear friend Jeff Allen was the drummer for the band as well. Um, and Jeff was the drummer in the Meridians in Scotland. He was the drummer of the Beat Stalkers. I mean, you mm-hmm. know, a lot of these guys that I know, they're all, you know, involved in the industry. But he, uh, he eventually, um, Alan Thompson, who was another dear friend of mine and fantastic musician. Um, in fact, I met him just recently with Jerry Donahue down in the way did the uh, we did the blues festival in the Cole uh, a couple of weeks back. <coughs> but he was in the band and um, and Spencer Cousins or Foss Patterson, I think, was in, in the first lineup I played with. But I, I just got the call with a 
come and do some gigs and uh, I did quite a few gigs with John at different times my first tour with him we did quite a few Scottish gigs the second tour we did some first we did a thing along with the big country in a festival and played gigs in England and things like that but we did quite a lot of gigs and he always wanted me to record with him but the thing about John I think he was it was always very quite often it was quite haphazard the way I'm things were right. and it was he'd, he'd call me at like three o'clock in the morning when I was in bed and go Ted you fancy come down doing and play a bit of drums because he stayed down near Moffat at that point right. and um, and there was times where I was you know uh, on my way almost you know and, and then something happened but I mean I never got to do that but I had great and great fond memories of working with John uh, and of course the two of us did some substantial drinking at that point as well that was a it was quite an interesting period of uh, but he he turned me on a lot of really interesting stuff as well I always enjoyed talking to John very interesting very interesting man um, but uh, he turned me on to a great album uh which he'd requested in one of the gigs that we played down in Stoke and Trent. And he said, listen to this. He said, I've got the guy to put it on. And it was Pat Boone. Pat Boone in heavy metal mood. It was big band arrangements of Purple Haze, Whole mm. All Over, Stairway. And she's a biased You know, it was really really good arrangements it was amazing mm -hmm. and I just of course everybody just went and jaw dropping it was ridiculous Pat Boone Pat mm -hmm. Boone are you serious uh, but that was one of the funny things that John did but I could tell you a few other things that John did but I'll save that for another day <laughs> that's going to be on part two and we're also going to cover Rory Gallagher more mm -hmm. we'll talk about Ian Gillen we'll talk about Gary Moore we'll talk about Schenker this mm -hmm. is definitely going I was joking earlier when I said a nine-parter but I can see it ahead in that direction <laughs> Ted absolute yep. pleasure yeah my pleasure um website we can google you you're on Twitter you're on Facebook add mm. Ted follow Ted do what you've got to do yeah 48 years in the business and part one of many. There we have it, Ted McKenna. As I said there, that is going to be the first of definitely a good few podcasts with Ted. Some great, great stories of an amazing career. 48 years he's been playing drums. And believe me, we haven't even scratched the surface. So very, very exciting to hear what Ted's got to say. Be sure to check out episodes with Julian Lennon, Stuart Copeland, many, many more on scottkibbe.com. And also... I've started running a vodcast series. The first episode includes the amazing Nathan East, bass player Eric Clapton. He's played with Daft Punk, Stevie Wonder, Michael Jackson, you name it. Nathan East has played the bass with him. ScottCowie.com keeps your podcasts and vodcasts together. And check me out on the 18th of October, if you're about, the Griffin, Sucky Hall Street, Oxjam Extravaganza. And I will see you guys next week. <laughs>